This is Car Expert. I think if we were to do a little rematch, the 308 would probably be the one that would go head-to-head with the Civic and, and come in with the best chance of toppling it. Cupra has also confirmed it's considering an electrified sports car. This one in particular would be a halo model for the Cupra brand. The inside has its own unique flavour compared to the other stuff we've seen out of Hyundai and Kia so far on that platform. Hello and welcome to another Car Expert podcast. Once again, I am not Mandy Turner. I'm Scott Colley. We promise Mandy will be back next week. Uh, She's still crossing the country, but I think maybe on the back of a flatbed truck, there's been some beetle troubles. So we'll be sure to catch up on all of that uh, when she's back next week. But Will, this week is the Australian Grand Prix in Melbourne, and I assume you won't be going? I'm sorry to disappoint you, Scott, and... uh Pretty much every other enthusiast that I talk to, I don't follow motorsport. So it's just all just noise to me. But I know that you are a big fan. Will you be going? Thanks for asking, Will. I will be going. Um, we're going infomercial there. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be there on the Thursday. Uh, Ford has a media call of some sort. I'm not sure what they're announcing, but I'm curious to know what the uh, Ranger Formula One edition will look like. <laughs> um, and then again on Friday uh, as a guest of one of the car makers. And then one of my friends has recently moved into an apartment directly overlooking the track on St Kilda Road. So on Sunday, we're going to be able to see a chunk of the action from the sort of King's Way side of Albert Park from her apartment, uh, but from the the free sort of confines of there with free food and drink and the whole deal. It's going to be great fun. See, even I would enjoy that. Yeah, we've got a, our own homemade private box set up. Um, Will, you also were keen to talk about a pretty funky Nissan concept that we've covered this week. What's the story with the Nissan Inspector Gadget Special Edition? Well, unfortunately, they didn't call it that. That would have been really cool. They decided to call it the um, the Nissan Contemporary Lifestyle Vehicle. I'm sorry. I'm going to try and get through this without laughing. Um, basically, it's just a version of the Skyline. And I know people think, oh, Skyline is going to be some cool, awesome sports sedan concept with twin turbo power or whatever. No, that's not what Nissan is focusing on with the contemporary lifestyle concept. It's basically like a showcase of all the kind of like accessories and innovations that Nissan has to offer. And that might sound really boring, um, but it definitely crosses over from boring into strange (laughs) because there are just so many odd touches here, like um, a wing mirror that actually is a rubbish bin, um, a storage compartment underneath the rear bumper. Um, there's also like a like a, a screen at, at the, the rear of the cabin, I think is supposed to look like a, a sunroof, but it's actually just a screen. Um, there's also, you can fold the sun visor down on the driver's side to connect to the steering wheel and it's not explained in the video in the video why on earth you would do this i'm sorry it's just such a ridiculous concept and the video uh, the production values are good it's it's very well shot but they they hired this like dancer to, to dance around and make strange facial expressions as he shows off the features you have to watch this guys for everyone listening you have to watch this video um uh, it is on our website um but yet yeah, nissan contemporary lifestyle vehicle it's it's very entertaining watch i trust it sounds a little bit like an expensive office development with contemporary lifestyle in there as if they're offering free bike parking showers for all and a bustling cafe at the bottom of it um i particularly like that there is a photo we have in our story and there's a giant home button on the steering wheel 
it's the size of a start button. I can't quite work out what it does though, because on the left-hand side, there's normal controls. And then there's obviously the, the center of the wheel and the horn and then just home. And I don't know if that takes you home on the driver display or on the touchscreen, or if it actually takes you to your house, which is something that theoretically Nissan's pro pilot could do. It just feels like a designer said, I know iPhones have home buttons. Let's do that instead on our concept car. It really is quite an interesting one. And some of them are just, some of them are just really simple things like a heated cup holder. That's nothing new. That's been around for like 20 years. Um, but uh, the, I guess the, the coup de grace is that you can open the boot lid and uh, there's a projector in there so you can watch movies with the car. I guess the whole idea is oh, this car is so practical and useful. You could practically live in it. Um, you can't. There's no fridge or shower or, or um, facilities. Um, but uh, it's certainly an interesting concept. All right. It's time for some car news with Jack Quick. Joining us this week for car news, we have Jack Quick. Jack, it's good to see you again. Now, this week, Kia has shown off a new electric SUV that looks like an EV9, but is the same size as a Sportage. Yes, a little bit smaller than the EV9 is very cool to see. So um, Kia has revealed the Concept EV5, uh, which uh, previews a smaller sibling to the EV9, which was officially uh, revealed properly for the first time not that long ago, uh, the production model that is. So uh, the Concept EV5 was revealed in China and uh, will slot underneath um, the existing EV6 crossover that you'd be familiar with. Um, at this stage, we don't know a lot of the, the details, but it's expected the EV5 will be based on the eGMP platform like the EV6 and the EV9, also the Hyundai Ioniq 5, Ioniq 6, and also the Genesis GV60, the like of all of those um, Hyundai Kia EVs. Um, at this stage, Kia hasn't disclosed um, exterior dimensions of the Concept EV5, but um, if you've seen the, the photos of it on the website, it looks uh, appears to be similar size to um, the Kia Sportage, uh, which is a medium-sized SUV with two rows of seats. Now, um, on the outside, uh, this Concept uh, EV5 uh, has a similar aesthetic to the, the EV9 with all of its angular design pieces. And uh, a few of the things from the Concept EV9 actually carried over to the, the EV, Concept EV5, with those being the, the special uh, rear-hinged rear doors and um, also the swiveling seats. Um, the latter of those features actually appeared in the production version of the EV9, which is really cool. I remember talking about it last week with Jade about that in particular. Um, a few other interesting elements uh, in the Concept EV5 include uh, a panoramic sunroof that doubles as a solar panel and also uh, sustainable plant-based interior uh, materials. Um, as I mentioned just before, we don't know a whole heap of information about the Concept EV5, but hopefully we'll know a little bit more sooner rather than later. And uh, once the production production version is revealed, it will form as one of the seven all-electric models Kia plans to launch before 2027. Now, I'd love to know, what do you think about the Concept EV5? Looks great. I mean, as you said, Jack, we don't know that much about it in contrast with the EV9 where they just released a whole bunch of information this week. Um, but to give this baby EV9 styling when the EV9 seems to be so well received already um, was a very good idea by Kia. So I'm, I'm very uh, anxious to learn out more about this car. I love that Kia is committing to this design language as well. Uh, we've seen the brand evolve quite quickly when it comes to design. The, the Stinger was going to be the hero, and then we've moved now to a point where the EV9 is 
clearly the uh, the next generation of Kia cars are going to be upright, boxy, with that really aggressive front end. And to be honest, I'm, I'm very here for it. Now, from Kia to Mazda, Jack, Mazda has detailed pricing for the CX-90, and it's going to be one of the most expensive Mazdas we've ever seen in Australia. Yes, Scott, that's right. So, um, yeah, Mazda Australia has detailed its new flagship, uh, the CX-90, which is a a three-row SUV. Um, At this stage, it's due to arrive in Australian showrooms from August this year. Uh, like the smaller CX-60, um, which shares its rear drive platform, uh, the CX-90 will be offered in three trim levels. Now, those three trim levels are Touring, GT, and Azami. Now, pricing for the CX-90 starts at just a little bit under $75,000 before on-road costs and extends all the way to just above $95,000 before on-road costs, which means uh, drive away, you'll likely be paying more than hundred grand for a Mazda. Now, um, at launch, the, the CX-90 will be uh, exclusively be powered by inline six engines, both petrol and diesel, um, with a 48-volt mild hybrid system like we've seen in the CX-60 already. Um, and a plug-in hybrid is expected to be offered sometime next year. And that, also, that powertrain is also shared uh, with the CX-60. Now, just a few other quick things. The uh, the CX-90, as standard, has seven seats. And uh, though the Azami can be optioned with a second row captain's chairs and a rear center console, which overall makes the, the total amount of seats to be six, obviously. Now, what would be your pick of the CX-90 range? Would you go entry level or would you go full out 100 grand Mazda? I'd be going full out 100 grand Mazda, I think. Um, We did some research when this press release hit our desks, and this is only behind the RX-7, the the very curvy, pretty generation uh, in terms of the the price scale for Mazda Australia. And once you start adding options to it, it it almost could be more expensive on sticker price uh, than that RX-7. Although if you account for inflation, the RX-7 takes the lead again. We won't go into that. Um, But I think this CX-90 looks fantastic, and I think Mazda does its best work either at the very entry level of the range where its cars are really quite fun to drive and really quite nicely spec'd or at the very top end where they offer a really unique take on luxury alongside the Germans. So this CX-90 for about 100 grand, I think is going to be a really interesting rival for the Volvo XC90 and it's going to be very confusing comparing the CX and the XC90s um, or a BMW X5. I think that's where I'd be going. What about you, Will? I'm very excited to drive this car. It's Mazda is being so ambitious with these new premium models. They're pushing up into a part of the market that they haven't competed in a long time, probably not since the days of UNOS. Um, so I'm very excited to drive this. And both of the powertrains, at least on paper, are very efficient. I'm not usually much of a diesel guy, so that petrol inline six does look tempting. But look, I know some have criticized Mazda for not investing uh, soon enough in EVs and for introducing an EV to Australia that's you know <laughs> not much to write home about. Um, and it does seem a little bit silly against that backdrop um, for Mazda to be investing so much in large SUVs with big petrol inline six engines. But while we can enjoy <laughs> the sale of new combustion powered vehicles, let's enjoy it. And um, while I'm sad that Mazda still seems to have um, not... Um, not be working on a, a rear-wheel drive sedan on this platform. Uh, the SUVs so far are shaping up to be looking pretty 
pretty good. And uh, we know as well that CX80 has been confirmed for Australia. There's still uh, CX70, which has yet to be locked in for Australia. Both of those two models uh, haven't been revealed yet. So there's there's more to come, but CX90 is the, the biggest and the grandest and probably the one I'm most excited about, to be honest. Jack, it's been a big week at Cupra. We could have had a new section just for that one brand. We're going to bundle them all into one. What on earth has been happening? Yeah, as you mentioned, Scott, there's been a lot happening and I'm going to try my best to kind of condense it into a nice little package. But uh, Cupra has a number of models it's currently investigating. Now, um, the company is eyeing an entry into the US market. Um, now, one of these models uh, is likely looking at to, for this US market is a larger SUV. And um, Australia would be in line for, for this model too. And now um, we don't really know a lot about this large SUV yet, apart from Cooper just saying it's investigating it. Um, but it could be larger than the upcoming uh, Tiguan-sized uh, Terramar SUV. And um, as I mentioned, it, uh, this large SUV is going uh, going to be a global model uh, produced in both left and right-hand drive, and um, it's going to have a provocative design. That's all we really know at this stage. But beyond this, uh, Cupra has also confirmed it's considering an electrified sports car, which I'm really excited for in particular. Um, now, this one in particular um, would be a, a halo model for the Cupra brand. And now, last of all, um, Cupra has uh, also confirmed it's readying electric successes to the Leon and Formentor, um, which will keep their nameplate. So there's going to be electric versions of the Cupra, uh, the, the Leon and the Formentor. Uh, very cool to see. And I'm looking forward to those too. Now, um, which models uh, out of the ones that I mentioned just then are you looking forward to the most? I want to see a sports car. Cupra is a sporty brand. Its cars look really confident already. I think they're great fun to drive as a general rule as well. But ultimately, the essence of what that brand can do is is hiding in a sports car. So I don't know what it'll look like. I'd love maybe Cupra's take on that sporty little Volkswagen electric convertible concept we saw a couple of years ago. Um, I can't remember what it was called, but Will's nodding at me across the desk, so I'm sure he'll tell me. Um, but the potential is there, and Cupra, I think, has the has the credibility potentially to actually pull off a sports car given the the fact that the rest of its cars also look sporty. Uh, I think it's a great place for it to be going and I, I hope they actually go through with it. It's very exciting. Volkswagen Group is really investing a lot in the Cooper brand. They seem to see it as uh, being a, a new uh, global player. And that news, while it doesn't directly affect us in theory, um, that Cooper is entering the American market uh, is, is certainly big news. Um, now, it probably won't be until the end of the decade um, or, you know, 2030 or onwards, but that's big news because in the US market, there's no Skoda, there's no Seat. Um, it's just Volkswagen, Audi, and obviously the, the higher end brands within the Volkswagen group there. Um, now, Coop, uh, the US market obviously prefers larger products. Um, so, this suggests that, you know, maybe there'll be more um, larger products down there because it would be a bit unusual for a brand to enter. Uh, they, they have said that it would be a kind of a niche positioning there, but it would be a bit unusual to enter with something that's just as large as a Tiguan as your largest model um, if you want to offer a whole line of products. And that's what, exactly what they've said. If they're entering the market, they want to have a whole line of products. Um, but yeah, I, I'm probably most excited about the sports car because, Scott, you're absolutely right. It is a sporty brand. So uh, the one thing this brand hasn't offered thus 
thus far. It's had EVs, it's had hatchbacks, wagons, SUVs. It hasn't had an actual sports car yet. Um, so very excited to see that if it does come to fruition. But news that there will be a replacement for the Leon EV was in particularly uh, particularly interesting to me because we know that the production version of the Urban Rebel concept is coming very soon. Um, and they'll finally confirm what the name of that production model will be this year because they pretty much said, no, we're not going to call it Urban Rebel. <laughs> Thank goodness. Um, but the Urban Rebel is a small, sporty hatchback, um, which is somewhere sort of polo-ish in size from memory. And then they've got the Bourne, which is also an electric hot hatch. So I don't know where they're really going to take the Leon in its next generation because the brand is going EV only. So it would presumably be an electric model. But um, look, it's very exciting times at Cupra. And I want to see if their experiment really pays off because they've been using the Australian market as a beachhead for entering other markets. Um, so I wonder if Cooper can become a serious global player. Also, for those playing along at home, it was the 2009 Volkswagen Blue Sport concept we're talking about. We're going to put a photo in the podcast post so that anyone can reference it if they want to. Finally, Jack, let's talk Hyundai and Robocop. Can you please explain the connection there because I'm a little bit lost. Yes, so yeah, um, Hyundai has revealed a heavily updated version of the Sonata, uh, which looks a little bit like the Robocop. And uh, it's been revealed online ahead of a full reveal at the Soul Mobility Show on March 30. Um, at this stage, it's set uh, to launch in Australia in the second half of 2023. Now, um, a highlight of this update, apart from, uh, I suppose the, the main highlight is the looks, um, the, is this new sensuous sportiness design language um, with a front end that resembles the, the Staria and the, the recent re- recently revealed uh, new generation Kona um, with the huge monobrow uh, DRL for a bit of context there. <laughs> and now um, overall, uh, this updated uh, Sonata is a lot more aggressive than the current model um, particularly in N-Line guys. Now, um, on the inside, there are also uh, significant revisions, um, including dual 12.3-inch tw- uh, displays, um, a, digi- a digitized HVAC uh, controls, and then last of all, um, a column-type shift-by-wire gear selector, kind of like what you see in the Ion- um, Ionic 5 and Ionic 6. Now, um, as I mentioned, this is the reveal has only been online thus far, and we haven't seen the full reveal, which is um, coming very shortly. Um, but drivetrains are expected uh, to carry over or be updated versions of currently what's available. And uh, it's also worth noting that in Australia, we currently only get the flagship N-Line version of the Sonata. Now, I know that this story went kind of viral on socials, but what do you think of the, the new Sonata, or the updated Sonata, I should say? It looks fantastic. It looks really cool. This is how you do a midlife update and this is how you have a corporate identity across your products without all your vehicles looking the same or without the facelift looking heavy-handed. Now, the current Sonata I think looks good. I think maybe it's just a little bit too rounded at the front. It's got some cool details like my favourite bit is the little chrome strip that turns into the daytime running light. It almost blends seamlessly. It's a really neat detail. But the front, I've heard people call it kind of catfish-like and it's a bit rounded and this really sharpens it up but it doesn't mess with the rear which looks really good still um so i I think this is this is a really fantastic update and i can't wait to to see it on the road and it's it's worth noting as well that hyundai sometimes really brings it when it comes to midlife updates of the sonata this is probably 
like the third generation of Sonata where the midlife update has like completely transformed the looks of the car. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm excited. I, I do wonder um, if it will continue to just be an N-line only proposition here. Um, Hyundai sells the Sonata in just one variant. They originally indicated that they wanted to bring other variants in, but they only decided to bring in the N-line and it does it outsells the Honda Accord and Peugeot 508, so that's something. Uh, but it is, it's, uh, I think if considering midsize vehicles have become, midsize passenger cars, I should say, have become so niche in Australia if you don't have a Camry on the boot lid, um, I think Hyundai Australia has just gone, well, look, if it's going to be a niche product, let's make it really niche and really focused. And it's, it's, a, it's a good car. It's flawed, but it's, it's a good car. I quite like it. I don't know that I care, to be honest. Um, I really like the current Sonata. I think it's fun to drive. I think it looks quite good. This one definitely does look better, but ultimately, no matter how many Robocop facelifts they give this thing, I think it's probably on its last legs because the car market is moving away from vehicles like this. Um, In the US, it's not gone crazy on the sales charts. In Korea, it's not gone crazy on the sales charts, and they're the two markets where it really needs to sell strongly. This feels a bit like a Hail Mary for Hyundai, I hope it pays off because diversity is a good thing and, and we want more you know, interesting cars and sedans like the Sonata. But I think no matter what, this could be it for that that car in that form or, or you know, this, this current Sonata in this current form and whatever comes next might have to look even more different again. I will just quickly say as well, um, you're right, it's, sales have fallen off in Korea, but historically the Sonata has been one of the best-selling cars in Korea. In fact, I think it was like the best-selling car for several years. Um, nowadays, the Sonata, over the past few years, it's actually gotten, it's outsold by the larger Granger sedan. Um, so, there's still an appetite for sedans in Korea, but I think often Hyundai has had to like correct course with the Sonata because they introduce a generation, it really takes off in one market, but then sales struggle in another one because they've taken the design too far in one direction. They go too conservative and it doesn't do as well in the US. They go too brash, it doesn't do as well in Korea. So this is a bit interesting because it seems quite aggressive and, and quite brash. And I don't know if that's really going to arrest the sales slide in Korea, um, but you're, you're right. It, it is at the risk of, of kind of getting squeezed out because, I mean, even Korea is embracing SUVs. Um, I think pretty much every market in the world is embracing SUVs. And we know Hyundai's got the Ioniq 6 now, so it's got a similarly sized sedan that's full electric. So I don't know what the future of Sonata is. We've seen reports that this may be the last generation of Sonata, which would be sad to see. Um, but yeah, you're right. The market is changing. For all of those stories and plenty more, head to carexpert.com.au. Jack Quick, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Scott. James Wong has recently been off driving the new Hyundai Ionic 6, an electric streamliner with the same bones underneath as the Ionic 5. It's a very arresting car to look at, James. What's it like to drive? Not like being in jail. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I just had a resting and I had to um had to put that joke in there. Um it's a really interesting car because even though it shares its bones with the likes of the um Ionic 5 as well as the Kia EV6, it sort of has its own distinct flavor and feel and you know sort of ironically, not ionically, it's the first normal passenger car on that platform because the other two are crossovers. So it, it did have a bit of a different feel and it obviously looks very interesting. It's got this, that um, Hyundai calls it a streamliner. It's got this very like swoopy four-door coupe look but uh, and like a dual-tier spoiler treatment that kind of mixes elements of Saabs and old Porsche 911. So it's really just striking car to look at and the way that they've um, Hyundai has um, 
created the interior space also is a sort of a unique take on it all as well. So it was a very interesting car to drive this week and um, pilot over some of the more high-speed winding roads around Albury and Wangaratta. So, but I did come away really enjoying that car. So I think the main thing that really caught my eye about this car was the looks. It's it, it sort of, yeah, retro streamliner meets Saab meets Ionic 5 from some angles. Um, what does that mean for space inside and is it as practical as its big body would suggest? Yeah, so it's a, it's a very long car um, and like the Ionic 5, it has an extremely long wheelbase um, for the size. But this roof line does mean that it eats into headroom a little bit in the rear. Um, at I'm a little over 6'1", and while I wasn't wedged up against the roof liner, if you're a little bit taller than me like yourself, um, you might find that you're a little tight for headroom. But legroom's quite massive uh afforded by that long wheelbase but because of the raised floor to accommodate the battery pack the tow room under the front seats is a bit squishy so you sort of have to rest your feet flat on the floor a bit closer to you and that means knees are slightly up Um, but in the front it's a very airy spacious feel Hyundai said that um it it really tried to maximize legroom in both rows and it, it does feel like that you can rest you can push your seat um up front really far back and so have plenty of um leg and knee room for the rear passengers if you so desire and um obviously it's a very open space and um you know wide straight lines for a lot of the interior design elements. So it gives that impression of space as well, despite it being a lower, you know, more car-like vehicle than something like an Ionic 5, which is almost like a, I don't know, a cube on wheels. So yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely very interesting. And again, the inside has its own unique flavor compared to the other stuff we've seen out of Hyundai and Kia so far on that platform. So speaking of other cars on that platform, we've seen that kind of spread of dynamic ability from Ionic 5 all the way up to the really focused, really fun EV6 GT. So where does the Ionic 6 kind of sit on there? Is it more of a cruiser or is it kind of a sports sedan? It strikes a nice balance, I feel. Um, It's hit me very quickly on the drive program that it's not an overtly sporty car, um, perhaps like an EV6 GT, um, and I guess the the if there's an N version of this, which I assume there will be, given there was a concept running um, a very early prototype version of a potential drivetrain. Um, but it does sort of feel like a, a German sports sedan, like something along the lines of a 3 Series, um, but a non-M3 Series in that it sort of errs on the side of firm, but it's still very poised, balanced, comfortable, and, and you know, does a great job of dialing in a little bit of engagement um, and having a really sure-footed, planted feel across all speeds uh, without, without the being to the detriment of comfort. So for the most part, I was driving um, the mid-spec model, which has 20-inch alloys um, and Pirelli P0 EV tires. So even though they're performance rubber, they've got like a a foam lining in them and that kind of thing to reduce noise and rolling resistance, but they're still, you know, more performance-focused tires compared to the standard 18-inch wheels. And even in that car, it was very comfortable. It it did sort of pick up the higher frequency, lower impact bumps a little bit more, but it's, it's never uncomfortable. And 
you know, handling it through some of the winding mountain roads up, you know, by the the Murray. I was really impressed with how sorted and tied down it felt. It was it was much closer to an EV6 GT than an Ionic 5 um, in that sense. Um, the Ionic 5 can feel a bit tall, soft and woolly, particularly when you make go quite fast around a corner. And this felt very, very different from that. It was much better resolved, um, much more just like a normal sort of sporty car, um, if that makes sense. So um, I definitely came away feeling like, you know, this, it, it felt very European, very, you know, well sorted from a driver engagement perspective. And, you know, right down to sound insulation on the 20 inch wheels, it was still very, very quiet in the cabin, um, even though we were driving over pockmarked coarse chip roads that in some other vehicles would transmit quite a lot of tire roll into the cabin. So it just felt really refined and resolved and um, a good all rounder. It felt sort of like the, the, the basis of a GT rather than a, you know, a proper sports sedan, if that makes sense. So what are the powertrain options in Australia and what does the range look like? I know you did quite a long drive behind the wheel of the, the car you brought back to Melbourne. Yeah, so there's two drivetrains on offer and three distinct trim levels, which could change in the future, but that's probably a story for another time. Um, so the entry-level model gets a single-motor rear-wheel drive electric drivetrain, which has about 168 kilowatts, um, whereas the high, the mid and high-spec grades get a dual-motor all-wheel drive with 239 kilowatts. So basically the same engines that the same electric engines that you'll find in the Ionic 5 and the EV6. Uh, in terms of range or driving range, uh, the base model quotes uh, 600 and I want to say 14 kilometers or in that vicinity on the WLTP combined cycle, which is very, very good. Um, and then if you opt for the all-wheel drive ones in the, with the bigger wheels um it, it drops down to about 514 which is you know roughly 100 k's off um part of that long range is down to the incredibly streamlined body which quotes a drag coefficient of 0.217 cd on the um, 18 inch wheels and standard mirrors um and Hyundai claims the base model can do 14.3 kilowatt hours per 100 kilometers, which is very, very efficient. And, um, you know, with that claim, it would it would take the title as uh, most efficient in class, which is a little bit better than a um, Tesla Model 3. So it definitely um, has, quote, some really cool numbers. And we with some mix, more mixed driving, since I've come back to Melbourne, not sitting at 110 on the Hume, um, you definitely can get fairly close to that efficiency claim, uh, which would mean that you should be able to get quite close to the range claims for the respective drivetrains. And I suppose the other burning question I have about this car is to know what actually makes it an Ionic. Because theoretically, when you sit in a Hyundai i20 all the way up to a Santa Fe, there are still some common things that link them together in how they drive, how they look, how they're put together. It feels like Hyundai doesn't necessarily want to do that with the Ionic range. So I'm curious to know what you think makes this identifiable as a sibling to the Ionic 5. Um, well, there are some commonalities around like the dual 12 and a quarter inch displays. Uh, it gets a funny steering wheel, which is two spokes and has the four dots on the hub, which is actually Morse code for the letter H, which I found really interesting. Um, and it's got other things like the um, 
what the EGMP platform does is that it has that sort of skateboard architecture which affords more space. You can sort of see the open plan concept and the flat floor, which is common amongst all the products on the platform. And then from a design perspective, while it doesn't necessarily look like an Ionic 5 aesthetically, there's a lot of details that link the Ionic models together. So there's a lot of that pixel design motifs through with the lights, um, the LED daytime running light signatures, a series of square dots. Um, and the same thing with the rear. It's got a full width LED bar, but it's all the pixel looking lights um, across the back, which is common to the Ionic, Ionic 5 in concept, but not necessarily the exact design is the same. Um, it's got a very sort of like retro modern look. Um, and uh, it also has a lot of the, the tech that's um, available in the Ionic 5. So if you go for the top spec model, for example, you um, can have it with those digital side mirrors which have OLED screens uh, in the somewhere between the, the top of the dashboard and the A pillars on the interior. So if you're into new age tech, whether from a usability perspective it's better or worse, I'm not 100% sure. I didn't spend much time with that car, but the, the screens do seem to be better integrated than the previous car, uh, the, the Ionic 5, sorry. Um, so it's things like that that make it an ionic um, and also f- by doing that as well there are elements that make it obviously a Hyundai it's also got a new flat Hyundai badge on the bonnet which is the first time it's been used and the other thing that ionic models tend to do lately or Hyundai's electrified models do is offer you know sustainably sourced elements so there's um, carpets made from recycled fishing nets. Um, some of the interior plastics are made with recycled materials, um, as also with the the paint. Certain parts of the paint, like the contrast bumper finishes, are made from uh, recycled and sustainable materials. So there's things like that where um, you know for the Ionic brand, it's meant to be a reduction in emissions and. Uh, moving towards a more sustainable mobility future. So there's things like that that tie them all together. So having spent some time in in a a few different variants, James, which would you choose if you were buying an Ionic 6? I think my ideal Ionic 6 isn't actually available to buy here, if that makes sense. I think I would probably – I could do without the dual motor – um, drivetrain, but I'd want a high spec. And that's mainly because I'm a bit of a tech buff and I love having all the latest and greatest features that a, a manufacturer has to offer. So being able to get the um, the top spec is called the Epic, but it's spelt with a Q. So I don't know whether you say it funny or not, but <laughs> being able to get an Epic level of specification, perhaps with the option of the smaller wheels, but um, and with the rear wheel drive version would be great um but i think you know the the base model with the real wheel drive um option offers a lot of really good standard specification they all get the the big screens they all get a head-up display they all get the full hyundai smart sense um safety and autonomy package they all get matrix led headlights it's it's really well specified from the base level plus you get the most range in the range so that base car with there's a really cool digital green paint um, that sort of looks black but then when the sun shines on it's got this really deep almost british racing green look to it um that i think that would be the color that i choose and if i was able to spec the brown interior with it which is available with other colors but not specifically with that color at the moment that would be my ideal spec but unfortunately i can't do that right now And I suppose to wrap that up, where do you think the Ionic 6 sits on the sort of scale of electric cars available in Australia at the moment? 
I think it's easily one of the better ones, particularly under $100,000, whether it's worth um, the price premium over something like a Tesla Model 3, I don't know, um, because it, even though it's a little bit bigger dimensionally, uh, the base Model 3 is almost you know 10 grand cheaper. So that's sort of like a hard pill to swallow for somebody that perhaps has a more budget-focused mind and doesn't fall under the, the cashback incentives that a lot of states and territories have. But if I was looking at buying an electric vehicle for myself, this one would probably be up there with the best of them on my shopping list. To check out all of James's thoughts on the Ionic 6 and find a rating, head to carexpert.com.au. James, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Now, Scott, you've written a comparison test for the website. Uh, we've put together three very familiar small car nameplates. Uh, can you tell us what those were? Yeah, we put together a Volkswagen Golf, a Mazda 3, and a Honda Civic, uh, all of them high-spec versions of the cars, because it turns out the hatchback isn't really what it used to be. You used to be able to get into a Mazda 3 or a Golf and a Civic up until quite recently for 30, 35, or even 40 grand that came with a lot of equipment. The driveway prices on these three cars were 45 grand for the Mazda, 47,120 for the Golf, and 47,200 for the Honda. All of these cars are nudging $50,000 and we kind of wanted to see what the new role of the hatchback was and which brand has best transitioned from affordable family car to luxurious take on the small car formula. So imagine each of these vehicles um, has got a very different feel to it. Um, which would you say is the most luxurious, the most premium of the three? Look, I think in terms of the luxury stakes, it's the Honda or the Mazda, and it's probably the Mazda. Um, Honda has really made an effort with the new Civic to make it feel a bit more special than the last one. The last one looked like an anime character, had some really interesting storage ideas inside, but it just felt a bit dull. Uh, it had a hard central armrest even at the top end. It, it was just It was a little bit sort of economy car dressed up. This new one is much nicer. You get really nice faux leather seats. You get really nice detailing across the dashboard that looks like sort of chicken wire, sells it short, but essentially it's hexagonal metal trim. Lots of little things that make it feel a little bit interesting. Put alongside the Mazda though, the Mazda we had was an Astina. It was a G25 and it had beautiful red and black leather. Everything you touch feels soft. All the dials make a nice little click. It feels like a real quality item. I think the real surprise package was the Golf. We expect Volkswagen to be kind of premium for the people, to use their own term, uh, sort of uh, an Audi on a bit of a budget. But despite having a sticker price, just 80, sorry, a driveaway price, excuse me, of $80 less than the Honda, the Golf we got was a mid spec life. It wasn't a top spec R line. And it just felt a bit dull compared to the other two. It's got gray cloth seats. It's got a big slab of foam metal trim on the dashboard. It just doesn't look or feel as nice as the other two. And it misses out on features they get, like leather seats with power adjustment, uh, among other things. The other thing about the Golf is that uh, although it sort of still looks quite nice on the outside and it still feels premium enough to drive, it also isn't the best performing or the best handling car on test here, which we'll get to down the track. But I think one of the findings we had was that although it's still a rock solid car, the Golf is no longer the leader in that space. It feels a little bit lost. All right, so Mazda 3 or Civic is probably a tie for what's the most premium feeling, but what's the most sporty of the three? What would be the, the, the driver's choice of this trio? 
Yeah, look, that's where the Mazda comes into its own. Uh, Mazda for a long time has had its Zoom Zoom tagline, and I, I hate it when journos use taglines in their stories because obviously it's not our job to market for the brands. Premium for the people. <laughs> Premium for the people, exactly. Uh, but ultimately, the Mazda does feel the sportiest of the lot. Uh, it, it has really lovely steering and a really lovely suspension setup that means that it doesn't feel like uncomfortable in town. It sort of feels a little bit firmer, but it's almost like a warm hatch with the way that when you turn it into a corner, it reacts. It's also really nice and compact. At least it feels it from behind the wheel. And that makes it easy to throw around on tight roads because you're not worried about clipping the corner of it. In reality, it's actually quite big. It's very long, almost as long as the Civic, but the way that it drives makes it feel nice and small. I think the other surprise packet here was the Honda. Um, the Civic, the previous gen car, was again known for being serviceable, but not all that much more. This new one feels quite fun to drive. It's got lighter steering than the Mazda, and it's a little bit bigger, but it kind of it kind of slots between the the very relaxed Golf and the quite sporty Mazda to have this really lovely feeling of a, a nice, comfortable, controlled ride, but also still being willing to respond when you tip it into a corner. Uh, and it kind of shows as well how Honda's managed to build the Type R because the base is really good. The other big difference between the Mazda and the Honda is in the engine. Uh, both the Honda and the V-Dub have turbocharged engines. The Mazda, sorry, the Honda's got a 1.5, the Golf's got a 1.4, and they have roundly similar torque outputs. The Mazda has almost as much torque as the other two, but it's got a 2.5-litre naturally aspirated engine that really needs to be worked a little bit harder. So when you're in a hurry in the Mazda, although the handling is the best of the three, it really needs to rev all the way out to get going. It makes quite a bit of noise. It just doesn't feel effortless. Whereas you put your foot down in the Honda and the CVT does a really good job of pretending it's an automatic transmission and kind of slotting you right where the engine's torque is. It's quite natural the way it accelerates and it really gets a move on. Uh, and the Golf has that effortless Volkswagen thing going on where it's just got so much torque down low that it just gets a move on, gives you a little shove in the back without making an effort. The Mazda can't match the other two when it comes to that. Um, even alongside the Golf, it's got a six-speed as opposed to an eight-speed transmission, so the gaps between gears are bigger. And that is a little bit of a knock on its sporty credentials. We just Mazda does do a turbocharged version of the three in the USA and in Mexico, and I just wish it came to Australia because it would unlock a new dimension to that car again. Amen to that, Scott. I just keep hoping and praying that they bring that car here. But it sounds like the the three is the most engaging of the three, even if there are some flaws there. But are there compromises with the three? Has has Mazda uh, let some things go um, in the pursuit of of offering perhaps the or one of the most dynamic cars in this segment? The compromise that car brands often make when they want to make a small car handle is fitting an independent rear suspension as opposed to a torsion bar. Uh, that eats into boot space and sort of impedes on your packaging, but is generally thought to, to make a car handle better. Despite being the best handling car here, the Mazda has a torsion bar, which also should make it really well packaged and spacious in the back. Uh, unfortunately, it isn't. Um, the boot is the smallest of the three. Um, although it's got a, a claim that's quite a bit lower than the Golf, it actually has quite a usable space, but ultimately it is the smallest boot of the lot. It's got the smallest boot opening and the back seats aren't great. Um, we've had some owners comment on our story saying that they have a Mazda 3, they put adults in the back, it's it's fine. I agree that it's fine, but it's nothing more than that. Um, and things like the window line, which is really quite tightly pinched and is really impeded by the massive C-pillar, mean that if you are carrying kids or smaller people back there, it's quite 
dark and quite dingy. Uh, it's also got smaller doors, so getting in is harder. It just doesn't feel like a car where carrying people in the back was a primary concern when they were designing it. And to be honest, that's because that kind of is the case. With the world moving to SUVs, Mazda's introduced the CX-30, and that's now a more practical more comfortable car for people who want a small vehicle that still can carry people in the back. And that's why the three looks so good, but also why maybe it's not as comfortable and practical. Um, between the Golf and the Honda, it's a little bit tighter. The Honda is the biggest car of the three here, and it kind of does show when it comes to legroom. You, you can really sit tall adults back there behind someone like you, Will, around six foot or me at six foot seven, and you'll get them in much better than you would expect of an old Civic. Uh, the Golf counters that by having more headroom and it's got a more conventional roof line, which means the windows are bigger. So if you are carrying people in the back, they're the two that do the job better. If you're chucking stuff in the boot, the Honda is the winner of the lot quite comfortably. It's got a massive, although it's a hatchback, it's got essentially a lift back like you get on a Kia Stinger that runs all the way to just over the top of the back seats. And that means that if you're putting really bulky items in there, it's easy to load them. It also means that when you are loading that stuff in, you're less likely to bash it on the side of the boot and damage it or damage your car. Um, Honda has for a little while now been building very practical cars. The, the Civic, the, sorry, the Jazz and the HRV have had magic seats. The Civic has grown into a car that's essentially an Accord Euro in size. And that really does pay off. It, it's something that although we were aware of when we first drove the Civic, really comes into its own when you put it side by side with its biggest rivals. You touched on something there that I was about to ask you because we've seen mid-sized passenger car sales just really collapse um, over the past few years. Do you think that these vehicles are a good replacement for somebody who might be coming out of an Accord Euro or who might be coming out of a Mazda 6 or an old Passat or something of the like? In the case of the Honda, the answer is absolutely yes. Um, I, I sort of think that there are a lot of people who may be downsizing their cars. They may have had an Accord or an Accord Euro or a Passat or a Six or I mean, potentially an SUV previously and want to hop into something a little bit friendlier, but without feeling like they're really cramped. Um, it's a fairly common thing. And I think of my parents as an example of this that have gone from having big family cars to smaller cars because obviously they're not carrying children around anymore, but they also don't want to hop into a Polo or something that feels very cramped because they're used to having a bit of space. I think the Civic fits in that niche really, really nicely. The Golf is a little bit less like that. It is still a very practical and quite a spacious car, but it feels like a Golf still inside. Um, and obviously, the Mazda is the sportiest and the smallest of the three. The Accord Euro thing is quite interesting, though, because that car, when it came out, offered sort of semi-premium feeling interior, really attractive exterior, really fun handling at a price that, although it was quite expensive for a Honda at the time, still undercut a lot of the, the premium competition. It's also worth bearing in mind that at that point, Subaru was trying to do the German thing with the Liberty and the, the market was slightly different. Having driven a couple of Accord Euros, the Civic really does feel like a successor to that to me. It's similar size-wise. It feels similarly light on its feet. And although it's still not a luxury car, I still think the Mazda is more luxurious. There are lots of features in there and lots of things that you get that kind of justify the price tag in a way that... I think I didn't expect when the car launched. I didn't fully appreciate until sitting in it alongside the Golf. With that said, there is still some stuff missing. Uh, our Civic at 47200 is theoretically fully loaded, but when you drive the hybrid, you get a sunroof. 
The other thing ours is missing is a full digital instrument cluster. You get a, an analog speedo and then a digital rev counter off to the left-hand side. And although it's pretty effective, it's better than the tech in the Mazda, but significantly worse than what you get in the Volkswagen. Ultimately, if you are paying that much for a Civic, I want everything to be included. I don't want to have to look at Japan and go, oh, there's extra stuff there. So I think there's still work to be done by Honda as it works to reposition the Civic, but the bones are there and it really does stack up very nicely. And that's a criticism we've we've often heard in the comments on pretty much any article we've written about a Civic, um, of the current generation Civic, that is, people saying that $47,000 as the base price for the Civic is, is a steep ask, considering that's, what, 15 grand higher than the previous generation. Um, obviously, a much higher level of kit than a base model 10th generation Civic. But is is a small car buyer perhaps better served looking at a lower end Mazda 3? Like, do you really need to step all the way up to an Astina? Um, and likewise with a Golf, this is the mid-spec and it sounds like it's not exactly brimming with features. Um, would somebody be better off with a base model Golf? I know you can't go any further downwards with a Civic, but what about the 3 and the Golf? Uh, really good question. And it's one that I think the car makers are trying to work out as well as they simplify their ranges and try to push people into SUVs. Uh, in the case of the Mazda 3, yeah, you absolutely could go down in the range and you won't be missing out on much. Uh, even the entry-level Mazda 3 has a really beautiful interior, comes with quite a lot of kit um, and, and is fun to drive. And Mazda does quite a cool thing by offering a full range of engines pretty much across its entire lineup. So if you do want the G25, which is the most powerful engine in the Mazda range, um, then you, you can have that on a nearly entry-level car and save yourself 10, 15 grand. So I can understand why you'd do that with the Mazda. The Golf, though, I'm not so sure. Um, I, I'm finding it hard to understand where this current Golf sits because on the one hand, it does so much Golf stuff really well. It drives really nicely. It's still very polished, very quiet. It was comfortably the most efficient car of the three on our test. It averaged about 5.7 uh, on a mixed loop we did compared to 6.5 for the Civic and more than 7 for the Mazda. That's a huge difference on the same roads. And there are also people who are going to be hopping out of Mark's 5, 6, 7 Golfs who will hop into the 8 and go, this feels like a big improvement. But no matter which spec you go for, the tech feels a little bit off. Um, the the golf is um, the golf is moved to a big dual screen setup now, and although it looks really flash, and the driver's display in particular is excellent, ergonomically it's a bit tricky to use. It's got little touch sliders and lots of sub menus, and it's just not as simple as the Mazda, which has a rotary dial uh, and a tr proper climate control setup, or the Honda, which gives you the best of both worlds and gives you a really simple, clean, easy touchscreen and a really simple, clean, easy climate control pod. Um, in the case of the base Golf, it's only 2500 bucks cheaper than the Life based on list price. Drive away, that, that difference is a little bit bigger. But uh, And the equipment you get by moving to the Life is kind of meaningful. You get bigger wheels, you get power folding mirrors, you get configurable instruments, and you get a bigger infotainment system, all of which I think are important in a Golf because it's still meant to be a semi-premium hatchback. And the other thing is even the entry-level car isn't that cheap at the moment. So if you're going to spend big on a Golf, you might as well spend big on one that kind of makes you feel a little bit better. But yeah, uh, I think in the case of the Mazda, it, it, it performs really strongly across the range. In the case of the Golf, it's still an excellent car, whichever you go for, and it still has all those Volkswagen strengths. But to feel enough like a, a premium-ish little hatch, which has always been the Golf's pitch, the mid-spec car we tested is probably the one. 
right? So that's the one within the golf range. But talking about the comparison test overall, which is the one? Which one? Which one won? One, one, one. Uh, the Honda came away the winner, and that is not what I expected going in. Um, the, the Civic was really given a whack when it launched by everyone, including us, for how expensive it was. But over the intervening two years, the, the hatchback world has really moved up in price. And when you put equivalently priced cars side by side, I think the Civic is the best rounded. It sits between the Golf and the Mazda on how fun it is to drive, how comfortable it is. It's the most spacious of the three. It's, it's close to being as luxurious as the Mazda. And when you throw in the fact that it's the cheapest to service of the lot, uh, I think it offers a, a lot of car. Uh, it really is impressive. I think the Mazda came in second because of how much cheaper it was than the other two. Two grand driveaways not to be sniffed at, but also because it feels more cohesive than the Golf. It still is a luxurious little hatchback and it sort of fits in with what Mazda's tried to do with it. The Golf is not a bad thing. I know that's sort of classic consolation prize speaking. Um, but just alongside these two, it, it doesn't feel as confident or as clear in what it's trying to do. It's still very expensive like the Honda, but it doesn't feel as luxurious or as spacious. It's more expensive than the Mazda, but it's not as fun to drive or as special inside. So I understand why you'd buy it. And there are plenty of people who are Golf people and will be forever. But the Honda does a better job of rounding out all of its strengths and actually justifying its price tag. Now, there's been a little bit of a, a mini exodus in this segment in Australia. Um, are there any other cars that somebody who is in the market for a well-specified small passenger car, are there any other cars that people should be considering that, that weren't included in this test? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, look, you can look at a top-end Hyundai i30 sedan, but I don't think it feels as premium as any of these offerings. And obviously, we were comparing hatchbacks here. Otherwise, look, you're getting close to entry-level luxury branded territory anyway, BMW, Audi. But BMW does its best work up the range. And as much as I like the Audi A3, you're still getting the watered-down version of a luxury car. So I think these really are the three that spring to my mind at least, at the ones that I'd be looking at. Uh, I get the feeling maybe you've got one in mind though, Will. I don't have anything in particular in mind, but I was just thinking off the top of my head, you've, you've got Corolla uh, hybrid in this segment and you've got Skoda Scala in this segment as well. Um, Peugeot 308 is another sort of premium focused uh, small car, except without the luxury brand. Um, would you think any of those would, would could potentially top the Civic if they were put head to head? It'd have to be the 308. Uh, the Corolla is excellent. It's very efficient, but it's much smaller inside than even the Mazda 3. And it also, it doesn't feel nearly as nice in any spec. Uh, it is nice for a Corolla. It's nice for the price, but it, it's still it's still a different sort of car. I think the 308 is an interesting one. And it's a car that actually price-wise is probably slightly above the Civic, but not by all that much and offers a really unique look and feel inside. So, I think if we were to do a little rematch, the 308 would probably be the one that would go head-to-head -head with the Civic and, and come in with the best chance of toppling it. But to be honest, even that 308 is quite compromised in the back seat and the tech is good, but still a little bit fiddly. So I think it'd be quite close, but uh, the roundedness of that Honda means it'd be tough to beat. All right, head to carexpert.com.au to check out the full comparison between the Honda Civic, Volkswagen Golf and Mazda 3. 
That is a wrap on another episode of the Car Expert podcast. Will, let's go through which cars are going to be in the garage this week. Um, so, in the garage this week in Melbourne, uh, we have got a Suzuki S-Cross. Uh, we've got a Ford Puma. We picked that up a little earlier. I had that over the weekend, reacquainted myself with a car I genuinely really like. Uh, we've got another Kia Nero. This time, it's a top-spec GC Line hybrid. Uh, another Honda Civic. So, if you're uh, curious to hear more about the Civic, we've got the hybrid EHEV LX this time. Um, we've also got a Subaru Forester in top-spec 2.5i S-Trim. Uh, I just picked up a Volkswagen Arteon shooting brake. Who is going to review all these cars? We have a lot of cars. Um, a Hyundai Ioniq 6, uh, a Tesla Model Y Performance later in the week as well, I believe. Um, and I just had a little bit of a surprise because I just got given the keys to a Cupra Leon VZE. This is actually my second time driving a Cupra. I had some time uh, with a Formentor up in Brisbane that I found to be a really pleasant surprise. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to spending some time in that Leon. Um, up in Sydney, uh, there is a Sangyong Muso XLV Ultimate. That's something I reviewed coming out of uh, uh, Ute of the Year. Uh, and we've also got a Hyundai Venue, uh, which has received a minor update for 2023. Uh, so there'll be a review coming to that, uh, coming of that, I should say, to the website soon. Now, Scott, do we have any events that we're going to this week? There's a lot of Formula One action, funnily enough. Uh, so I am going to be at Albert Park on Thursday with Ford uh, talking about some mystery announcement. I'm going to be curious to hear what that is. And then next week, we're driving the Ford E-Transit down here in Melbourne. And Lamborghini is going to be showing off the Lamborghini Urus Performante up in Sydney before we go into Easter. Will, thanks very much. Thank you, not Mandy Turner. And Mandy will be back next week. <laughs>